Our study is Revelation chapter 12. We'll read Revelation 12 and start at verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. And the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In this chapter we've got uh, a few major events that occur. First, the there is a woman, a woman who is with child and she's described in the first part, then a dragon, and then the dragon's opposition to the woman and that is in verses 5 and 6. And then a great war, a war that takes place in heaven between Michael, his angels, and the dragon, and the dragon's angels in verses 7 and following. But there is victory. From verses 10 to 12, there is victory and there is joy in heaven. Then back to the earth and the things that transpire on the earth, verses 13 to 17, there is uh, turmoil, warfare, between the dragon and the offspring of the woman. Now, what is this all about? There are two main ways, two main ways to look at this chapter. One way 
takes it more literally, not completely literally, but more literally, and that's the dispensational viewpoint, the dispensational or, or dispensational premillennial viewpoint. This viewpoint takes this literally in the sense that it is future and it will take place primarily in the period of the Great Tribulation, which is seven years long, and in the middle of the seven years, three and a half years in the middle, until the end of the seven years, that is the time of great tribulation and persecution against the saints on the earth. That viewpoint takes this chapter as mainly happening at that time, although they do take this woman to be Israel and Christ to be literally born, and this, of course, took place 2,000 years ago. However, this warfare and all of the persecution is a persecution that takes place in a three-and-a-half-year period, yet future. But the other viewpoint, the other major viewpoint, will take more of these things symbolically and figuratively, and some of these events have taken place in the past, and others of these events will take place yet in the future. And primarily, this is describing a period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. From the first coming to the second coming of Christ. And that is the viewpoint that I will be promoting here. Verse 1. Verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. Here, he calls this a great sign because from now on, he's going to mention seven times uh, about a sign or various signs from here until the end of the book. From here until chapter 19. And so this great sign or great spectacle here, he's seeing things that are more dramatic and cataclysmic and therefore he's calling them signs. A sign is something that is visible and is a spectacle to see. He, it is a great one. Now the great sign here is this, um, in heaven he sees a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and under her, uh, under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. This woman clothed with the sun, moon, and twelve stars. Who is this woman? Well, according to the first view, it is literal Israel and regardless of faith. So it's literal Israel regardless of whether they are believing Israel or not. But according to the second viewpoint, the viewpoint that is, is, that is espoused here, is that this is believing Israel. It is believing Israel because later we're going to hear that she not only has the offspring that comes from herself, that is literally Christ comes from believing Israel. After all, Joseph and Mary were Jews and he came from them. But also it says in verse 17 that the woman who is persecuted has the rest of her offspring that is also a target for Satan. So who could the rest of her offspring be but believing Gentiles? So the viewpoint that is preferred here is that the woman represents the true church, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Throughout most of history and up to the birth of Christ and the first century, primarily the believing church, the people of God, the true people of God, were Jews. But from that time onward, primarily since that time, it has been believing Gentiles and some Jews. So that is the, the view 
taken here. And then what, what does it mean that the sun and the moon, she's clothed with the sun, moon, and 12 stars, a crown of 12 stars? Well, this immediately reminds us of Genesis chapter 37, when Joseph saw a dream of his father and mother and 12 stars, meaning his 12 brothers who would bow down to him. Well, his father and mother and brothers, eventually they were all believers. At some point in their life, they were all believers, and they become in the Bible, Old and New Testaments, representative of believers and the, the, the leadership and the ancestry, the, our forerunners, our, our forefathers in the faith. That's who they are and how they are represented. So for her to be clothed with them is another way of describing how these, uh, she is the representative, the full representative of people who belong to God, who belong to God. Verse 2, And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. She's with child. Now, specifically, the child that is born is mentioned in verses 5 and 6. But before the child is born... We know from five, verses 5 and 6, which are more explicit, such as verse 5, this son who is born, and specifically a male child, sing in the singular, he is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. From chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, we know that Christ, who is called the Word of God there, and the King of kings and Lord of lords, Lord of lords he is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And also we know this from Psalm 2, from Psalm 2 and Revelation 19. Therefore, verse 2, between the time that the saints of the Old Testament knew of the coming of Christ and to, till the coming of Christ, they knew and were hopeful that Christ would be born. Christ or Messiah would be, would be born. He would minister. He would die on the cross for their sins and rise from the dead and then ascend to heaven and await between his first and second comings for the full number of God's people to be redeemed and then he would return and establish his eternal kingdom where we participate. But in the meantime, verse 3. Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. This sign here now in heaven is a great red dragon. He's great in that he has great power. Not that he is the greatest of all who are in heaven, but that he has great power. He's red, he's red because he's a bloody creature. He's out to destroy. Dragons are depicted, not in a literal sense, not literal dragons, but in, in figurative ways, a dragon is a destructive creature. And he is red because he is bloody. He seeks to devour, to destroy, and to kill. The seven heads, ten horns, and then, then seven diadems on the heads, these depict his power, and his authority. Horns in the Bible are typically uh, symbolic of power, and seven heads with seven diadems, he has authority. He has some authority. He is called the ruler of this world, Jesus called him. 
in John 12, 31. Yeah, he is called the God of this world who blinds the minds of the unbelieving, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He has power, a delegated power given by God to him in order to wreak destruction for a temporary period. But he does not have full power. He has a delegated power represented here with the seven heads, diadems, and ten horns. He also sweeps away a third of the stars of heaven. A third of the stars. Whether this is literal, that he took away a third of the created angels or not, it is depicting the fact that he does have many followers, a third of the angels that God created. Now, angels are called stars in Job 38, verse 7, um, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So, the Bible does metaphorically call angels stars because they, in a sense, they have a delegated uh, glory, a relegated, delegated authority that God has given to them. So they are sometimes compared to stars. These he has. He has in his power, and he sweeps them away, and he uh, threw them to the earth. They all are are leaving heaven and they come to the earth. Why? They come to the earth to bring about destruction and to destroy souls. That's why they are here. But firstly, the dragon has as his primary desire to attack Christ. His primary desire in verse 4 is to attack Christ. We know that he was the enemy of Christ during Christ's earthly ministry. We know that in the time of Herod, Herod the Great, in Matthew chapter 2, Herod sought to destroy Christ, to obliterate him before he grew up, because he heard that Christ was to be a king. And he, being a, a, a man of rage and, and, and a murderous man, he is known outside the Bible, and even in Matthew 2, to be an erratic man full of rage and murderous thoughts. And he did murder even people who are close to him. So, this is what Satan did, trying to use Herod to destroy Christ. But that wasn't the only time. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, in the temptations in the wilderness, he tried to have Christ succumb to those temptations so that Christ would sin. And if Christ sinned, he could not be our Savior. Then, if Christ could not be our Savior, he would have us all. He would have all of us, we who were to be redeemed, we could not be redeemed because we could not have a sinless Savior. And also during his ministry, various times he sought to overthrow Christ, either through his disciples or through others. But he was not victorious. Amen. Well, verse 5. 5 as we said before, she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Here in this vision, there is just a brief note to tell us who the child is. He is a son. He is a male child. Therefore, this makes it more specific that it is Christ. But it also says that he is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Revelation 19 Revelation 19 specifies 19.11 And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
and his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, not seven, but many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Right there, if we don't know who this is, by verse 13 we know who this is, because the Word of God is a designation only of Christ, John chapter 1, verse 1, and John 1, 14. He is here, the Word of God. Four, verse 14 now. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, there we have the, the fact that Christ is the one who rules the nations with a rod of iron. But what about this expression in chapter 12, chapter 12, where it says, He was caught up to God and to His throne. What does it mean to be caught up to God and to His throne? Well, firstly, to be caught up means to go up into heaven, into paradise. That's what it means. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2. The Apostle Paul explains what happened to him. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. And such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Caught up to the third heaven. And verse 4, 2 Corinthians 12, 4, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So, caught up to the third heaven, caught up into paradise. He went up into heaven in this revelation that he received. Visions and revelation, verse 1 says. And so he was there where God dwells. Now, uh, also, a side note, when it says the third heaven, the Bible describes heaven or uses the word heaven in three ways. It will describe heaven as the place where the birds are, Matthew 8.20, the foxes have holes and the birds of the heavens have nests, but the Son of Man has no place, to, nowhere to lay his head. So they, the heavens, that is the immediate atmosphere above the earth is called heaven because that's where the birds are and that's a part of heaven. Then where the stars are, like Genesis 15, 5, the stars of heaven. I will make your sea like the stars of heaven. Heaven in, the, in outer space, that is known as heaven. And even in Revelation 12, we saw that uh, the stars of heaven or Satan swept away the stars of heaven. The, the place where uh, the stars are. And then where God dwells in the personal presence of God. That is known as the third heaven. That's what it means in 2 Corinthians 12 too. Uh, for example, in Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, he says, The heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So the heaven of heavens, the highest heaven where God dwells. Now, how do we know this is Christ who was caught up there? Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 explains 1 verse 
3. Hebrews 1, verse 3. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There, Christ he upholds everything, and then when he made, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And even in chapter 8, verse 1, Hebrews 8, 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In the same way, Revelation 12 describes how Christ... He is to rule the nations with the rod of iron. But in the meantime, He is caught up to heaven and He is at the right hand of God. He, and He is seated on His own throne at the right hand of God the Father. But, meantime, what happens? What happens between His first coming and His second coming? We know the ascension occurred. Verse 6. Verse, verses 6 and following. Revelation 12:6 And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1260 days. In the meantime, while Christ is in heaven interceding for us, the woman that is the believing church, believing Jews and Gentiles, flees into the wilderness where she is where there is a place prepared by God and nourished. Not only is there a place prepared by God, but she's nourished there. This reminds us of the fact that when Elijah was persecuted, Elijah in 1 Kings 19 fled into the wilderness and he was also nourished by God. Elijah the prophet, one of the great prophets, he fled into the wilderness and he was nourished by God. Well, in the same way, the whole church, in a figurative sense, in this period of tribulation and suffering, we are persecuted, but God protects us and God feeds us. He protects us and he feeds us in our period of persecution. He told us that he would do so. Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10 because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. God will test the whole world, those who dwell on the earth, but he will keep us. He will keep us from the hour of testing. He will protect us. John chapter 17 and verse 15 Jesus prayed for this very thing. In John 17, 15, he prayed that God would protect us. 17, 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. But to keep them from the evil one, to protect us from the devil. God protects us. He prepares a place and he nourishes us and protects us from the devil. Jesus prayed for that, and this is what we see happening here. The woman, the church, believing Jews and Gentiles, 
we are protected from the devil, protected by God. And also it says, for 1,260 days. 1,260 days. This is, again, three and a half years, or as it says in verse 14, a time, times, and half a time. A time is a figure of speech taken from the book of Daniel to mean one year, times in the plural, two years, which means three years, and then half a time, half a year, three and a half years. So in the metaphorical sense, our temporary period of affliction, temporary tribulation, takes place between these first and second comings of Christ. Or, according to the literal dispensational view, it would be in the last half of the tribulational period, three and a half year literal period. Whatever view, we are protected by God, the true church. Verse 7. How are we protected? How are we protected? We are protected because God's angelic hosts wage war against satanic hosts. Verse 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Michael and his angels. Well, who is Michael? From Daniel 10.13 and Daniel 12, verse 1, 10.13 and 12.1, Daniel calls Michael one of the chief princes. One of the chief princes. A chief prince can also be considered an archangel. So he is one of the archangels. It does not tell us very much more than that uh, in the Bible. It does say, though, in, in Daniel 10 and Daniel 12, that he is the protecting angel for the people of God. He protects the people of God, and in fact, he was having conflict in those chapters with evil spirits in order to protect the people of God, in Daniel chapters 10 and 12. So, in this way, Daniel, he being, or Michael being the archangel, he has other angels below him, being an arch or chief angel, one of them. He has other angels waging war against the dragon and the dragon's angels. The dragon's third of the stars of verse 4. The dragon, or Satan, is waging war with his demons against Michael and his chosen angels. All of these are in conflict. Well, when John sees, John the Apostle sees this conflict, he sees that Michael is victorious over Satan. He's given hope. He's given a reminder that God has all power, and whatever power God gives to his chosen angels, Michael and the rest of the chosen angels, whatever power he gives to them will be victorious over Satan. Satan will indeed be defeated. And Satan, such as Job chapters 1 and 2, Satan has access to God. He has access to God. But when this final victory occurs, he will not have access anymore. He will be separated from God and separated 
forever and ever. But in the meantime, he's thrown down to the earth with his angels. Verse 9. How do we know we're talking, when we say the dragon, we're talking about Satan? In order to be absolutely clear, the Apostle John in verse 9 says, He is the great dragon. He calls him the serpent of old. The serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And that's what brought sin, death, condemnation, and misery to all of us. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul also speaks of the serpent deceiving Eve. And later in that same chapter, he calls him Satan in verses 11 to 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. He identifies Satan as the serpent who deceived Eve. Therefore, in the Garden of Eden, we are dealing with the serpent who is a literal fallen angel, the devil or Satan. Not a legend, not a myth, not any kind of fictitious representation of evil or whatever people might say. We're dealing with a literal evil being personal, literal, evil being who is powerful and seeks our destruction. And this is what we find in the various names here in verse 9. He's also called the devil. Uh, the devil, and the, the, the term the devil means slanderer. He's called Satan. The term Satan means adversary. And I should back up. Dragon, dragon signifies destruction. And serpent one who is subtly, slyly, evil, and wicked. One who is deceptive. That's what the serpent is. So, he deceives the whole world. He deceives the whole world. When it says he deceives the whole world, it means the whole unbelieving world, the whole wicked world, the whole uh, reprobate world. The whole unbelieving world, that's what it means here. It does not mean every single person because we know from this chapter and from other places in Revelation there are many, many people, innumerable people who are redeemed, who are not deceived by Satan, who reject Satan and who follow Christ. He deceives the whole unbelieving world and he is thrown down to the earth and his angels are also thrown down to the earth. Well, them being thrown down in this vision is a foretaste of a final vindication and final victory that is celebrated. And again, it is celebrated as though it has already happened and past tense. Currently beneficial and already happened. Notice verses 10 and 10 to 12 are a celebration, a celebration, an exclamation of this victory. Verse and I heard a loud voice in heaven. Remember, when we hear loud voices, it's usually uh, in the book of Revelation and even other places in the scriptures, a voice of celebration. You cannot celebrate by whispers. You cannot celebrate in secret. You celebrate with loud shouts and openly. And this is what happens here. Now the salvation. Oh, by the way, who is speaking? I think this is people or saints speaking, not angels, because it says the accuser of our brethren. Brethren or brothers are usually 
people in the Bible, redeemed people, not angels and people. In fact, in Revelation 19.10 and 22.8 and 9, 19.10 and 22.8 and 9, there is a distinction that's made. Let's look at one example. John the Apostle in Revelation 19.10 is falling, he falls down before the feet of the angel who is right there. 19.10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus, who worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He's a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren. Fellow servant of yours, but your brethren. He seems to make a distinction between angels and the, the brothers, the redeemed people. So, this loud shout, verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10. Salvation, now, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. Now they ha- all of this has come. All of this has come to a consummation. All of this has come to a point of celebration. Salvation, power, kingdom, authority. What we saw earlier depicted in metaphorical terms, all of this comes to its completion and full consummation in God and Christ. In God and His Christ. The Father's Christ. The Son of God. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. He's been thrown down. He's been defeated. And he is called here the accuser. The accuser. This is the kind of thing he did as the devil and as Satan in the book of Job. And this is what he does all the time. He accuses not only Job, but he accuses us. He accuses us before the Father and says, Look, they're sinning. Look, they're unworthy. Look, like in Job's case, they don't worship you for who you are. They don't want you. They don't want to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. They just want you to give them some money. They just want you to give them some pleasure. They just want you to give them peace and health and happiness. That's what they want. They don't want you, God. They want the things you give. They accuse Job and they accuse us of those things. But no, God's going to show that His people truly love Him, not the things He gives them. Verse 11. Verse 11. They overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. They overcame Him. We, we, the brothers, we who were accused, we overcame Satan and his demons because of the blood of the Lamb. John has already said, Revelation 1, Revelation 1 and verse 5, he says that to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He released us from our sins by his blood. Chapter 7 and verse 14. And I said to him, My Lord, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We overcame because 
of the blood of the Lamb. And not only did we overcome, but chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is what Christ has done by his blood. That's how we overcome. We also overcome because of the word of their testimony. We overcome because of the word of our testimony. In 1 John, 1 John 5, verse 4, he tells us how it is we overcome. 1 John 5, 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We overcome the world also because of the word of their testimony. We have faith in Christ. We have faith. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And we maintain this confession till the end. Hebrews 3 verse 1. Hebrews 3 verse 1 speaks of our confession that we espouse until the very end. Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And verse 6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We hold fast until the end. We hold fast our confession in Christ. And this is what we proclaim whenever we practice righteousness, whenever we preach righteousness. We maintain the word of our testimony. And as well, verse 11 says, they did not love their life even to death. They did not love their life even to death. Just as Jesus died till the bitter end, he, he endured until the bitter end, so we, so we must be ready and willing to hate our own life in order to love Christ. Jesus said, Jesus said, Luke 14, Luke 14, 25, Luke 14, 25. Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
or what king, when he set, sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if salt, even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 26, he says, We cannot be the disciple of Christ if we don't even hate our own life. If we love our own life so that when our persecutors threaten to put us to death, we deny Christ and we, we walk away and we say, okay, uh, I deny Christ and from now on, I will do whatever you want me to do. I'll go and kill other Christians. I'll, I'll go and do this or that. Whatever it is, then we, we do not really belong to Christ. We must hate even our own life till death, in that sense. In the sense that whatever Christ commands us to do, we have to be faithful to Him until the very end. Verse 12, Revelation 12, 12. For this reason, for this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down, to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. All in heaven are to rejoice, but in the meantime, those who are on the earth, those who are on the earth and the sea, everyone else is to be in torment. Why? We are tormented because the devil has great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. Now, whether that short time is three and a half literal years or short time meaning, as the Bible says, I am coming quickly, meaning the time between his first and second coming, or short time meaning the time between his first and second coming, the devil knows he's got to work hard, labor as much as possible to devour us, to destroy us, to do whatever he can to bring us to ruin. 1 Peter 5.8 Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's a roaring lion. Or in this case, he's got great wrath. He's very, very angry, and he wants to wreak destruction wherever and however he can. He is, he is ruthless. He's relentless. He d will do whatever he wants. Verse 13. 13 to 17. Here is a final explanation and depiction of this war between the devil and the church. Between the devil and the church. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Why does he persecute the woman? He persecutes the woman because the woman is the church. Remember in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, Four, three, four, and five, Jesus approaches Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting the Christians, the body of Christ. He was persecuting the body of Christ. And that's why Jesus said, 
you are persecuting me. 1 Corinthians 12 describes us as the body of Christ being the church. Christ is the head of the church, and we are the eyes and the ears, the arms, the legs, so forth. We are the rest of his body. And in this way, when Satan persecutes the woman, he's persecuting the woman because he wants to destroy the woman, but he, ultimately his animosity is toward God. And that's why it says, who gave birth to the male child. He really hates Christ. His real animosity and, and spite is toward Christ, but he can't take it out on Christ, so he takes it out on us. 14, verse 14, And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. This reminds us of what we read in verse 6. It says that she fled into the wilderness in verse 6 and 14, and she was nourished in verse 6 and in verse 14. In verse 6, for 1,260 days, that's... Repeated in different terms in verse 14, time, times, and half a time, from the presence of the serpent, to be protected, to be protected by God. It is God displayed here as two wings of the great eagle. Two wings of the great eagle. God describes his own powerful protection of his people, he describes himself as an eagle. And of course, he would be the greatest of eagles. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19 is one example. Exodus 19 and verse 4. Exodus 19, 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 10, we'll read 10 and 11. He found him in a desert land. This is poetically Moses describing God's protection. 32.10, he found him, that is God found Jacob in the singular, meaning Jacob the nation, in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. This is God protecting his people in the wilderness, there too, in the wilderness as the pupil of his eye or as the apple of his eye, and like a, an eagle, a strong eagle, protects her young. And one more place, Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40 and verse 27, Isaiah 40, 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord 
will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. God's powerful protection. He will sustain His people even when they have to to be uh, jettisoned and, and persecuted and sent into the wilderness to be protected by God. The wilderness of our sufferings does not mean God has left us. He is going to protect us and keep us as Christ prayed that he would keep us. John 17, 15. Now, what does the serpent do? 15, verse 15, Revelation 12, 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. The serpent pours out or spews out water like a river to overcome and to sweep away with the flood the woman. His pouring out of water is depicting the way that he afflicts, the way that he brings hardships and persecutions and temptations to us. This is what it is depicting. The, sometimes in the scriptures, the, the, the afflictions of life are portrayed like this. For example, Job 27 20, 27, 20. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. Describing afflictions that come upon people. 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22 and verse 17. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. David describes his own trials and temptations and how God drew him out and protected him out of many waters. Out of all of the waters of calamity and afflictions, David was delivered by God. And in the same way, God shows that he will deliver. Verse six, uh, 16, Revelation 12, 16. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. The earth, all of the resources of God upon the earth, God uses in order to protect his people. He uses whatever is here to protect them. The, metaphorically in this chapter, it is the wilderness, and it is the seclusion of the wilderness, and the mighty power of God to protect his people in the wilderness of temptations and trials. This is how God protects he uses the resources that he has to protect his people. But what happens? So far, it seems primarily the believing remnant in Israel is described. But when the dragon sees that he's not going to overcome believing Israel, believing Jews, verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The rest of her offspring who also keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, similar comments to verse 11, chapter 12 and verse 11. The rest of her offspring. Now let's show that in the scriptures, the rest of the offspring is indeed speaking of the Gentiles. The first example 
The first example is John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 14. John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. Here, the analogy is sheep and shepherd. Chapter 11, John chapter 11, we'll come to see the analogy of nation and children. Children similar to Revelation 12. John 11, John 11. In, in this context, Caiaphas is here consulting with his comrades, his co-conspirators against Jesus. And they're wondering what to do. So he says, verse 49, John eleven forty-nine. 49. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this, he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, notice the word prophecy, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The nation, that is, the believing nation among the Jews, but also not for that nation only, but also another nation, signifying the Gentiles, here called the children of God scattered abroad. Nation and children of God scattered abroad. And then one more place. If all of that was too much imagery for us, let's look more literally at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Galatians 3, 6. Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. And the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. There we have that the fact that we are sons of Abraham by faith in the gospel of Christ. Verse 14, Galatians 3:14. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham is also available to the Gentiles. Verse 26, Galatians 3:26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Who are the you all who are sons of God? For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. There's the specific term, offspring, in verse 29. Abraham's offspring, and this includes, verse 28, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. We're all offspring of Abraham, and this is the offspring that Satan persecutes, primarily right now, in Revelation 12, 17. The rest of her offspring, we are persecuted by God. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.